This is, of course, uh, Easter Sunday, which is the day that historically, traditionally, the Christian church has gathered together to worship and to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But why do we do that? Why is that so important? Well, St. Paul in the Bible said that if the resurrection didn't happen, then Christians of all people should be pitied. We shouldn't take this seriously. We should go home. We should go start on our brunch. If the resurrection did not happen, then this is pointless. So really, the resurrection is in some ways really the key to unlocking what Christianity is as a whole and why the church even gathers together in the first place. So with all that said, let's look at 1 Peter, and I'll begin reading in verse 3. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is God's word for us this morning. If you would, let's pray before we consider it together. Father, in your mercy, would you be kind now to send your spirit to attend the reading and the preaching of your word that we may be pierced, cut to the quick from the inside out. Would you open eyes that are blind? Would you unclog ears that have been stuffed? Would you soften hearts that have grown hard? Would you do all of this to the praise of your name and for our benefit and our sake? And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago was spring break for Appalachian State students, and the ministry that I work with, RUF, took uh, 32 students to inner city Chicago, south side of Chicago, for the week to minister to the lower, in, you know, the uh, people that are um, impoverished there, the poverty, you know, the, the poor, the, the homeless that are in that particular neighborhood. And when we were driving there, on the way there, several girls in the group began to get a little worried, not that we were going to an extremely dangerous part of the city of Chicago, but because they were going to miss the season finale of The Bachelor. The Bachelor, the final season finale, was on Monday night, and we were driving up there Saturday night. So they began to compute, we're going to miss it. So the whole week that they were there, they made a pact, and I was in on it with them, uh, to not... Check Facebook, not check our phones, not you know, not email people because they did not want to find out how it ended. They wanted, they didn't want the ending to be spoiled, and so they wanted to be able to go back home after they've recorded it and watch it fresh, just a week after the fact. 
Now think about this. Why is it that they were so concerned about missing the, the, the ending of this ridiculous round-robin style marriage tournament reality TV show? Because if, you have, if you're not familiar with The Bachelor, it's this ridiculous show where one guy is videotaped and he has 25 girls that he randomly dates and kind of narrows down to the woman that he's going to marry. It's completely ridiculous but incredibly addicting if you've ever seen it. And so the reason why they did not want to miss it is because really the ending is the most important part of the story, of any story. This is why for some of you, if you know how a movie will end, or even if you know the score of the game, you won't go back and watch it. Because what's the point? All of the narrative pressure is on the ending of the story. And I think that is profoundly theological and profoundly biblical. The Bible itself is incredibly future-oriented. God himself is incredibly future-oriented. And because you're made in God's image, you too are future-oriented. So first Peter, Peter begins writing this letter to a group of Christians that are suffering. And the way that he begins his letter is to cue them in on how the story of the universe ends. He writes, he does this big spoiler. Here's how the story of everything in history ends. What he wants to do is he wants to orient you and to orient me to what our hope is if we are Christians. And this is really what Easter is all about. So if you'll allow me, the way that we're going to kind of get at this text is by asking three questions. What is our hope? What is the Christian hope? Secondly, how do we get it? And thirdly, why in the world does it matter? Those are the three things. What is our hope? How do we get it? And who cares? Why does it matter? First, what is our hope? Well, let's look back at verse 3. Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, that whole, the whole rest of this passage flows from, and it's just a branch extending off of the main trunk that is that, that we have been born again to a hope, a living hope. Now, if you think about it, the word hope can mean a lot of different things. Uh, the way that we use the word hope now is we say things like, well, I really hope that my team will win the NCAA tournament. Or we say, well, I really hope that my favorite band is going to come out with a new album soon. Or whatever. The way that we use the word hope is basically wishful thinking. I really hope that this will be the outcome. Biblically speaking, that's not what the word hope means. In the Bible, the word hope means a guaranteed expectation based off of a promise. It is going to happen. It is a guaranteed expectation. And so what is this hope that Peter is talking about in verse 3? What is the hope of the Christian, in other words? Some of you, many of you, will probably think, well, it's heaven. Heaven is the hope of the Christian. And you may be thinking that because in light of verse 4, especially look at the very next verse. In verse 4, he says, you know, we've been born to this hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. There it is. The ultimate hope for the Christian is heaven, right? Well, this may surprise you coming from a Christian minister, but heaven is not the ultimate hope for the Christian. Heaven is where our hope is kept, as the language says here. Heaven is where it is 
stored, where, where it is waiting until it is going to be revealed. So what is the hope? Well, if you think about it, most people in this culture, my guess many of you, if you're honest, aren't looking forward to heaven as it's being culturally described. Because you think, okay, so you're telling me for all of eternity, I'm going to be a soul, disembodied ghost floating in the cloud, wearing a robe, playing a golden harp, singing in the choir forever and ever and ever and ever. That does not sound pleasant. (laughs) That sounds boring. That sounds like the other place, actually. Now, the reason why so many people think that this is Boring that this is not something that we have to look forward to is because I think that's not what the ultimate hope is. The ultimate hope for the Christian is a renewed creation. Restored, renovated, glorified planet Earth. Now if that sounds crazy to you, let me just remind you that this is all throughout the Bible. The way that the Bible describes the Christian hope is it uses the language of new heavens and new earth, which is what we read in Isaiah 65 earlier today. Let me read you a few other passages. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit heaven? No, they will inherit the earth. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. It says, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. The promise to Abraham is that he is the heir of the world. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, the very next um, letter that Peter himself writes, he says, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. In fact, we just read it in our creed this morning from um, the Shorter Catechism. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory in their bodies being still united to Christ. Do rest in their graves. Till when? Till the resurrection. Till the bodies come out of the ground and inhabit a new heavens and a new earth for eternity. If it is true that the ultimate hope of a Christian is a disembodied soul floating in heaven for eternity, then that means that death has won. Death has separated body and soul for eternity, and death wins. But the gospel tells us that death has not won. Jesus has defeated death. He has conquered it. So all of the effects of death separating body and soul will be reversed and undone and actually made better as a result. That's what the gospel tells us. Heaven is therefore the temporary holding facility for believers until they can be reunited with their physical bodies and inhabit a physical, concrete, new heavens, new earth. When I was in college, I lived about three hours away from my home. I grew up in Dallas, Texas, went to school in Oklahoma, so I lived about three hours away. And any time I'd go back home for a break, for um, Christmas break or uh, summer break, I would always look forward to the road trip. And so what I would do is in my car, I would get all of my music ready. I'd get all of my favorite CDs and sort of have the playlist lined up for the next three hours. I'd get snacks, have an assortment of different little chocolate things and things for me to enjoy. I'd I'd go to 7-Eleven and get one of those big slurpy things. And so in the car was this amazing, wonderful spot for me. 
But that was not the destination. The car was not the final destination. My home was. And in the same way, heaven is not the final destination. It's the holding facility. It's the car. Is it going to be glorious and wonderful? Of course, the the wonderful things of God are going to be there. God is going to be there. The church will be there. No sin is there. Glorification. It's all there. But that's not home. That's the whole, as Peter says, that is where we wait. That's where it's waiting until it is to be revealed. And so think about this question. Here's what I want you to think about. Did Jesus live and die and rise again just to give you a personal sense of a peaceful and easy feeling? And then when you die, to airlift you to the clouds. It's not big enough. The scope of his redemptive agenda is, as we sing at Christmas, that the blessing would flow as far as the curse is found. How far is the curse found? Every square inch of this universe. And his agenda is to redeem all of it. Not just you as an individual person plucking you from the ground and scrapping creation. But he's taking you to heaven to wait until he's going to finally renovate everything. That's the hope. That's the first thing we see that Peter is talking about. We have been born again, redeemed into this hope. And so if your faith is in Jesus, you are linked up to that. Secondly, how in the world do we get in on this action? How do we get in on being a part of this new world with no poverty, no disease, no death, no sin? Here's how. Again, verse 3. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That word through is the language of of instrumentality. It, it, It is the instrument by which we get hooked up into this new heavens, new earth. It is the means by which we get connected to this thing, to the Christian hope. It is, it is the very down payment, the guarantee that the new heavens, new earth is waiting for us as believers. Now, for Jewish people, think about this. To the Jewish mindset at the time, resurrection was a little bit of a technical term. It, it, did, not merely, it did not mean resuscitation from the dead. It didn't mean somebody's dead and they kind of wake up again in their old body. It meant that, that they, they come back with this glorified new body. And, all, and by the way, all of that to the Jewish mind would take place at the end of time. In the Jewish worldview, the resurrection occurred at the very end with the final judgment, the end of all things. So when Christians claimed that the resurrection has already happened 2,000 years ago, that Jesus has burst out of the grave, the Christian message is that that future glorious age of the future is actually reaching back and breaking into the present. That the kingdom of God is not just out there waiting for us at the end of time, but it's actually beginning to bleed into this moment. Here's what, um, uh, here's what I think it's like. It's like, you know those old um, science fiction movies where uh, somebody magically kind of appears, but they're from the future and they're wearing kind of silvery like a silver jumpsuit with a deep V-neck, and they're kind of like, this is, this is, they're basically telling you, okay, this is what the future is going to look like. It's going to look like everybody wearing silver one-piece jumpsuits with deep V-necks, and that's kind of what to expect for your wardrobe. And that, in the same way, when you see Jesus resurrected from the grave, 
concrete, physical body, eating fish, glorified. That's the prototype of what the future is going to look like. In other words, when you look at Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, that's a prototype of what you're going to look like if you're connected to him. Here's what um, author Paul Tripp writes. He says this, The resurrection not only tells you what finally happened to Jesus, but as God's child, what will ultimately happen to you. I'll read it again. He says, The resurrection not only tells you what finally happened to Jesus, but as God's child, what will ultimately happen to you. Here's how the early church put it. The early church had a little phrase. Here's how they put it. They said, Jesus Christ died and rose again, and so shall all who trust in him. Jesus died and rose again, and so shall all who trust in him. So what do you do then, to answer the question, what do you do to get in on this action? How can you be a part of this resurrection hope? You do nothing. Jesus did it all. He lived in your place. He died in your place. He was raised in your place. And therefore, all that is needed is that you feel your need of him. And come to him by faith. And therefore, Jesus died and rose again. And so shall all who trust in him. So all you need do is come to him. And when you do, when you put your faith in him, the thing that happens is that you automatically get linked up to this trajectory, to this resurrection hope. Now, some of you are saying, okay, Matt, preacher guy, you're saying that the, the hope of the Christian is this new heavens, new earth, concrete, renovated planet, and the resurrection of Jesus is the inaugurating event of that. That sounds all very cerebral and academic. How, why, how does this matter? Why is this relevant? When I leave church here and I go home and have lunch, how does any of this discussion actually matter right now? Well, thirdly and lastly, I want to show you that it matters profoundly. Because how you know how the future goes is going to radically affect how you live your life now. And Peter knows that. And so what I want to do is I want to draw your attention to two ways that Peter shows us why this actually practically matters. Here's the first reason that the resurrection matters. is because the resurrection of Jesus gives you an invincible joy. The resurrection of Jesus gives you an invincible joy. Look at verse 6. He goes on a little further and he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Here's what Peter is saying. Peter is saying that the resurrection gives you a joy that is disconnected from your circumstances. It gives you a joy that actually transcends and kind of goes over and above what's actually happening in your real life. And let me put this into context for you. Peter is writing in the first century when Roman, the Roman government would gather up Christians like cattle. And they would cover them in tar and pitch. And they would hoist them up on poles and light them on fire while they were still alive to be the lighting for the emperor's garden, evening garden parties. The Christians were the torches. They were the, the actual lighting for the parties. 
Other points in history, Romans, Roman uh, soldiers would gather up Christians and throw them in the Colosseum to, do, uh, to be mauled by lions and bears, and, and that as a form of entertainment to the Roman culture. So this is, this is the context that Peter is writing to these Christians. And Peter is saying, look, the resurrection gives you a joy that is invincible in the light of that gives you a joy that's actually disconnected from what's actually happening in your life. And he reiterates reiterates this. Look at verse 8 and 9. He says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. How in the world can you face that sort of Circumstance, that sort of threat, that sort of danger, and, re- and be filled with a joy that is inexpressible. Well, think about it like this. The first three centuries of the Christian church, again, Roman soldiers, the Roman government, other, you know, they, they experienced other types of persecution. And, and basically what they would do is they would, they would bring Christians in and they would, they would look at them and say, worship Caesar or we kill you. And Christians would say, okay, then just kill us. The the, the power that these tyrants had over the Christians was they had the power to take away their life. But if the resurrection is true, then that power of the tyrant has been stripped. The tyrant no longer has any power over the Christian. And so so the Christians would say, okay, then just kill me. Because I get to be that much closer to Jesus quicker. There is a joy, there's a courage there because the resurrection is true. And to put some actual skin and bones on this, in February 20, on February 23rd, in the year 155 AD, the Roman government arrested a chief Christian leader, a bishop, by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp. I, I, I we should have named Reed Polycarp because that's an amazingly awkward name. But they rounded up this guy named Polycarp who was a bishop. He was 86 years old and they were going to burn him alive. And they said to him, revile Christ or we kill you. Renounce him. Curse him or we kill you. And here's what he said. We, we have actual primary sources of what he said. He says this, for 86 years have I been his servant. And he has done me no wrong. So how can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And so they were going to nail him to a pole and light him on fire while he was alive. And he said, you don't need to nail me. I'll voluntarily just hang here. I'll I'll stay here. You You don't need to force me in. I'll hug the pole and you can light me on fire. And they did. And as they did, here is what he has recorded to have prayed. I bless thee that thou hast granted me this day and hour that I may share among the number of martyrs in the cup of Christ for the resurrection to everlasting life, both of soul and body, in the immortality of the Holy Spirit. You see what he's doing? As he's dying, a martyr's death, he is reminding himself and anchoring his hope in the, in the resurrection. You can take everything from me because I get it all back. And this gives him an incredible, invincible joy and courage in the face of suffering. And so here's why this matters to you. 
If you do not have Christian resurrection hope, you are a slave to circumstance. Your mood is determined by what's going on around you. You, You're only as happy as the circumstances in front of you. And you're as low as the bad things in front of you. But when, when you hook into and live in light of resurrection hope, you're, you're liberated from circumstances. Your mood, your joy transcends it. It's disconnected from it. Because your joy is no longer connected to what's around you. It's connected to what's in front of you. That's the first reason why this matters. The resurrection gives you an invincible joy. And here's the second one. And I'll, I'll wrap up with this. The resurrection gives you a refined faith. Not only does it give you an invincible joy, it gives you a refined faith. Here's where I get this from. Verse 7. He's saying, before that, uh, though you've had to suffer, you rejoice. Verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, and then he describes what faith is. It's more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, here's what Peter's doing. He is comparing suffering to gold that is going through a fiery furnace. You know, you put gold into this fiery furnace and it begins to melt away and burn off the dross and the impurities. And then it comes out the other side of the furnace, more pure, more good, better. And Peter is saying... Suffering in the same way does this for your faith. Suffering comes in and it turns up the heat, turns up the temperature, and it burns away the impurities of your faith and and spits you out on the other side as, as having a faith that is refined, purified. But without the resurrection as the backdrop, this process will not happen. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. In 1665 A.D., 1665, there was this terrible plague that hit London. Now, to set up uh, the context, three years before that, so 1662, uh, in England, something happened historically called the Great Ejectment. The Great Ejectment. And what that was, was that all of the gospel, all the gospel-centered, gospel-preaching pastors were kicked out of their pulpits, were run out of town. They were kicked out. Of, they were kicked out. So that's the context. Three years before, all the gospel preaching ministers ejected from London. Three years later, 1665, a plague hits. Now what happened? All the gospel centered, all the gospel preachers that were out in the countryside came back into the city to help those that were sick. And all those that were in power at that point were the Church of England, the people that had kicked them out. They all ran for the countryside. They ran for the hills, and the gospel preachers ran back into the city to help the sick, knowing that they were going to get sick as well and die in the process. Why in the world would they do that? Again, because they know they are free to risk it all. They are free to sacrifice. They're free to risk it all because they know they're not losing any of it. They're getting it all back, even better at the end. And that is actually... That is a beautiful picture of their faith. Because of resurrection hope, because of that suffering, they had real, genuine, courageous faith. And that's actually what it looks like to love like Jesus loves. And so here's the second implication of this. If you do not have resurrection hope, then you're a slave to convenience. You're a slave to comfort. 
If the only thing that matters in this life is gathering possessions around you, gathering little trinkets and gadgets and clothes and friends and good food and good drink, and if that's the extent of your joy, you're a slave to comfort. You're a slave to convenience, and you will never be able to risk it. You will never be a generous person. You will never be able to help other people. You'll never be able to sacrifice. If your ultimate treasure is found in your treasure, you can't risk it. But if your hope is connected to the resurrection, connected to the new heavens, new earth, you're free to give it all away. You're free to be radically generous, not only with your time, but with your possessions, with your money, with your blood, with your life. That's what it means to love like Jesus loves. Because that's what he did for you, of course. So let me wrap up here. As you go into this day, which is a little rainy, but may become better. You know, you can wear your pastels. You can dye your Easter eggs and enjoy a good meal. Enjoy time with the family. And all of that's great. I want to encourage you, in addition to all of that, to spend some concentrated time today rejoicing, reflecting, marinating, reorienting your heart to the hope that is in front of you. New heavens, new earth, which has been purchased by, guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died, rose again, so shall all who trust in him. It is a day that is intended for rejoicing. Intended for celebration. So eat well, drink well, celebrate well. Because of new heavens, new earth. Because the resurrection is true. And I'll end with this. This is the the way that C.S. Lewis ends the very last book of his Chronicles of Narnia series. Called The Last Battle. Here's what he writes. And here's the vision that I want to leave you with. He says this. The things that began to happen after that, this is after the story is over, were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. This is the great story that the resurrection has purchased, and this is why we celebrate. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you have sent your son to, to live in our place, to die in our place, and to rise in our place. And therefore, would you give us a new, reoriented, reinforced hope of the hope that we already have. Father, I pray that this day would free us from our slavery to circumstance and free us from the, our slavery to convenience. Allow us to be radically generous, radically sacrificial and radically joyful in light of what is coming for us, those who have trusted in Jesus, who has paid it all in our place. 
Allow us to rejoice well, to celebrate well, that you may receive glory. You may have a smile on your face as we have a smile on ours. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.